Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of the Center for Progress and Innovation at the Independent Women's Forum. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nicole Sapphire. Dr. Sapphire is a nationally known medical contributor, best-selling author, and a regular guest anchor for Fox News Channel. Dr. Sapphire is a full-time practicing board-certified radiologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, and she is the author of a brand new truly fabulous book that's out now called Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Dr. Sapphire, I'm so glad to have you on today. Well, I am so happy to be on with you. Well, let's, of course, first talk about your book. I mentioned in the intro there that it is really it, it really is an exceptional book. I hope as people are listening to this, they are opening another window and 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 Googling it or, or, or going on Amazon. It is really a fantastic book and, an, and a must read for people who want the truth about what happened and has happened. It's still happening um, over the past 15 months. Um, and I will tell you, I, I actually put this book on my bookshelf right now. It's right next to me, but I put it on my bookshelf in sort of my reference section where I keep a lot of books that I use for data and really reliable information. So I really want to thank you. And I think, you know, I represent a lot of people out there who who don't have a medical degree. I'm not um, a trained scientist. And so for people like me who it, it is overwhelming, it is confusing. You're the what you've written is very understandable. Um, it's it is complex. I found myself sometimes <laughs> reading a passage twice. Um, because it's not an easy subject, but you really made it um, understandable, but also it is a page turner. So thank you so much for writing this book. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, one thing that I noticed throughout the course of the last year and a half, you know, everyone has been touched by this pandemic. So one thing that I noticed was that there was a lot of information that when it was being delivered, either people were not understanding what was coming out or the information itself self was being distorted. And I, and that was causing panic and anxiety. And I said, you know, what we have to do, we have to break this down so people actually can understand it. And they're not reliant upon the, the media or Google for information. Right. They can just educate themselves and come up with their own opinions. Well, what's so effective also about this book is the way that it's organized. I really like that you you are sort of touching on some of the most controversial topics, the most newsworthy topics that came up during the pandemic and are still coming up. Obviously, you know, you touched on face masks, you know, the phrase following the science, the inconsistent messaging on, you know, gathering and protests and rallies, China's role and the origins of the virus. These are all really important topics, but you, you talk about several and they're all laid out in different chapters and you go through sort of this was the issue why it was controversial what were the different messages where were the sort of different camps and then you lay out some really good science in each of these areas which I just thought that was a great way to sort of organize the book and it's it's kind of how I try to figure things out in general like when I'm doing my own research and so it's so nice to have it in 
in one book. Um, so, you know, honestly, I wish this podcast was more like four hours because I want to go over so many topics with you, but I want to just, you know, whittle it down to a few and thought we could first talk about face masks. This is an issue that probably has caused the most controversy and the most sort of tribal, you know, people sort of were set in their ways and had decided, but, and most like passion and emotion around face masks. But the reason I want to talk about it too, is it, it's still going on. You have people who, you know, are fully vaccinated and won't take their face mask off, but you've also, we've not got a situation where schools, many of them who have, that haven't, including my own, that have not opened yet, are going to, you know, they say they're going to open in the fall. And we're talking about fully, they're still demanding fully masked, ma masking of these children. So I kind of wanted to get a little bit into the the mask sort of debate and, and get your thoughts on um, and sort of the history of the controversy of masks. Well, this is an extremely important topic and one that I'm currently being very vocal on. You know, yes, I'm a physician. I work with cancer patients, um, so who are obviously immunocompromised. I myself take a medication for an autoimmune disease, which suppresses my immune system. And I also am a mother of three. So I come at my face mask opinions um, from many different angles. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, I talk about in the book, a year ago, when we really had no defense mechanisms against this novel coronavirus. We had no treatments. We had no vaccines. We didn't even know some of the details regarding how it transmits. Wearing face masks was one of our only modes of protection. Now, right. the people, the critics say, well, face masks, you know, they don't prevent viral transmission. It's like, well, you're right. They're not 100%. But, you know, when, when, when we had hospital systems overflowing and the ICUs were having to send patients elsewhere that had for other parts of the hospital retrofitted to take care of them. Hey, we want to do whatever we can. It's an all hands on deck effort. So, you know, wear a face mask. It's going to decrease right. transmission. It's not eliminate it. And so that's why, that's why we did it then. Then it became political in nature because you had president Trump who was, you know, not necessarily wearing face masks out in right. public. And I kept, I kept trying to relay this to people. And I even said this, directly to him via the TV saying, listen, the reason President Trump isn't wearing a face mask right now is because he was tested this morning and every person around him is right. tested. So he knows that they are negative. But for optics, it would be great to throw right. on a face mask. And, like, and then, he, you know, he ended, he did do that. But again, why do we need our president to put on a political stunt? I mean, that's more virtue right. signaling. I knew why he wasn't wearing a mask. It wasn't necessarily his anti-mask. It was, he wasn't wearing a mask because it wasn't necessary in that setting. Yeah. And unfortunately, the knee-jerk anti-Trumpism turned it into anyone who supports Trump is anti-mask and anybody who doesn't support Trump wears masks all the time. But those are two yeah. extremes. But it was funny then when when Biden comes in, many Americans had been vaccinated at that point. He had been vaccinated. As you say, everyone around him is tested and he's, you know, walking out to the helicopter um, with a mask on. And this went on for months. And that frustrated me, too, because I I also thought that there needed to be more confidence in the vaccine, um, you know, given to people, shown to people that, OK, I've been vaccinated. Everybody around me has. So now I can take my mask off. And that in some way served as an incentive to people that you don't like the mask. Well, if you get vaccinated, you don't have to wear one. So it was funny. It was frustrating. I agree with you on both sides, the messaging. And I think the messaging 
from the public health community was also frustrating. Um, um, from, you know, one hilarious, I chuckled so much in your book when you talked about that. I think it was a Canadian public health official who suggested people wear a mask while having sex. I was laughing so hard when I read that part. I, I, I had heard about that and forgotten it and then see, saw it in your book. And so, you know, I think messaging all around from all quarters was really messed up on this. But I'm wondering if you can kind of shift pivot over to I'd love to know your opinion on masking of children. And as we approach the fall school year, the next school year, um, how do you feel about continuing to make kids wear masks for you know, up to eight hours a day? Well, so and that brings us to where we are now. You're absolutely right. Um, When President Biden took over, all of a sudden, you know, he, it was a show of force. We wear masks now. It's like, well, but we don't yeah. actually have to wear masks now. <laughs> we've made it through that horrible second wave of the winter. And now we have vaccines. And we've reached a level of community immunity where vaccine transmission is it's, it's exceedingly low. It's not even considered local outbreaks anymore. It's more right. endemic. So I've been trying to say to people, the emergency is over. The pandemic's not over, but the emergency is. Any yeah. adult who wants to get vaccinated has been vaccinated. And thankfully a large portion has, and you add that with the existing immunity. And now all of a sudden that's why cases are so low. And the problem is you still have public health officials kind of trying to ignore the fact that we have acquired immunity from natural infection and they continue to want more people to get vaccinated. And that's fine. I understand that, but but that's not really what herd immunity is. Herd immunity is not about a hundred percent of a population getting a vaccine. Right. It's about enough of a, of a community being immune, whether from natural immunity or vaccine induced to provide protection for those who are not like our children. Right. Um, and so if you actually look at the transmission data in children right now, since the vaccines have been out, the transmission amongst children of the virus has decreased almost 90%. Yeah. So yes, when they say, well, now that the transmission is most in kids, it doesn't mean that there's more transmission in kids. It just means it's because <laughs> the adults are vaccinated. So they really twist words to they instill do. this level of fear. And you have educators and parents who are living in this, state of a perceived danger of the risk of COVID-19 in children, that it's a level of risk that has been acceptable before thinking of flu, RSV, strep throat, other illnesses, which, you know, can cause sickness in kids. And there are rare cases of severity, even death, but those levels are quite similar to the, to COVID-19 in kids. And even now, if you really look at the numbers, Even with the flu shot, there are more flu-associated hospitalizations with kids than COVID-19. And so we have to move away from that perceived level of danger. And in the beginning, maybe risk versus benefits when we're trying to lessen transmission. We had such high transmission, we should wear masks to help do that. But transmission is so low now, and kids are not vulnerable to this virus we have to reevaluate that risk and benefit. And there are inherent risks for prolonged mask wearing in children. Yes. Such yes. As and- dermatologic issues, acne, uh, sinus infections, um, dental issues, emotional, mental, everything. Yes. I don't think that it, I don't think that there's a risk that risk benefit at this point has shifted and we really need to get those masks off the kids. Dr. Sapphire, I can't tell you enough. I'm so thrilled that you're to hear you talking about this because I do think it, it really is frustrating for me because I live in a, a, a community where our superintendent, I mean, he's, he's, it's really, I don't want to turn this into um, 
talk about school closures too much, but I, he refuses to open the schools. He refused to, to, when the CDC went from six feet, the desk six feet apart to three part, three feet apart, he refused to do that. Now we, everybody's sort of suspect, everybody's to the point of just begging him to open the schools, which again are not yet open, um, that I don't think they're going to f- even focus on the mass. And if he does require masking of children for eight hours, nobody will say anything because they're just desperate to get the schools open. And so it's so frustrating to me that, um, you know, to, 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 to know what you've said here, to know this data and not to be able to convince someone, which tells me this is not about the science. It's about politics. It's about stoking that fear. It's about keeping people worried about this. And, and so I, you know, I think part of the, the masking has become this tool to keep people afraid. Fear is such a powerful weapon. And so if you don't want, if you're going to demand more money for schools for more and more, you know, PPE or whatever the schools are now demanding in order to open, you know, making parents feel like their kids are at risk and that they need to wear this mask and they need to. And like you mentioned this, you know, transmissions among teenagers or young children is is down, you know, 90%, but then they twist it and make it sound like, um, but teenagers are the ones getting sick now, but it's only because the adult, you know, what you, you, that, that whole thing is again used to to make parents so afraid and it's really effective. So I hope I hope people hear your message on the masking of kids because it really I think it really is sort of the next um, heated debate that parents are going to face. Well, and you know and it's not and so unfortunately the moment you say something about kids taking off their mask, they'll say, "Well, children have died of COVID-19." I know, and I know. every death is devastating, but you, we have more people dying in car accidents every day than COVID-19 right now, but yet st- people are still getting in their cars in their cars. Well, and the other thing is, is, you know, we, I, you know, I, I've written, uh, I'm very, I'm, I'm on record being very pro vaccine. I've written for the wall street journal on the need uh, for vaccines and, you know, the measles vaccine, for instance, is not 100% effective there. You can, you know, in the, in the rare case that you know, you're one of the very few people who gets vaccinated and still can, you know, gets the gets measles. Um, we, so that does happen because these these vaccines are, are wonderful and miracles, but they're not 100 percent effective. We don't mask after getting a measles vaccine. We just don't do that. We, you know, any of the vaccines my kids get, we're not we're not I'm not masking after getting these vaccines. So we do have to accept some level of risk, which seems to be lost on it. And again, when you're talking about the effects on kids, all of you just listed all of those um, those problems that are associated with masking. They just they don't make it into the the consideration of a lot of these school administrators. So it is, and, and that's not true of all school. I, I think I have a particularly bad case here. So um, I know some some school administrators, some superintendents, really are considering these things and and taking appropriate steps. But I want to shift a little bit. I think this is a good segue into another conversation having to do with kids and a decision that a lot of parents are facing is whether to get the vaccine for younger kids. I have I have three kids, too. I have all boys. Um, I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and 11-year-old. So pretty much in that 12 and up age range that is now being discussed about. And and you can, I can. I could get two of my children vaccinated. Um, and again, I've, I've said I'm very pro-vaccine, but I'm, I'm very hesitant. I'm, I actually belong in the vaccine-hesitant category. I don't want to get them vaccinated. And part of that is because of what you just talked about, about how these kids, they are not 
they're not getting terribly sick and if they get the disease and they're not spreading the disease to other people. So I don't understand this urgency to get kids vaccinated. Maybe you can tell me, make me understand this and give me your opinion on, on vaccinating young kids. Well, geez, anybody who follows me on Twitter is pretty in tune with how I feel about this topic because I'm also a mother to three boys and um, up all the time. But so I have an older son who's 21 and -hmm. then I have two younger guys, eight and six. Um, And I can tell you my 21 year old is fully vaccinated. Uh, That was his own choice. You know, it was, we had a conversation about it. He works with autistic children, young children. He want and they've been doing a lot of virtual stuff and he said he wanted to do anything and everything to make the parents feel better about getting back to in person and he wanted to make sure that he was doing anything he can to decrease transmission risk to these children who are at more a higher risk of severe covid as we know that there are some um, groups for in children that can be more severe obesity those with um, developmental abnormalities and mental health illnesses so i think he made the right choice i mean that was a very Good choice for him. Now, yeah. but I think when it comes to adolescents and kids, it's very important to have a safe and efficacious vaccine. Um, but it's also, it needs to be done on an individual basis. I don't really support the universal vaccine campaigns in these younger people for many reasons. Um, and I, I have a couple of opinion pieces on foxnews.com specifically talking about this. Um, I, and you know, I actually have one that's pro-vaccine in the Washington Post talking about why it's important to have a vaccine for kids. Mm-hmm. But the counter to that, not everyone necessarily needs to get it, just like not everyone gets like the shingles vaccine. We only right. give that to those who are at risk for it. And that's probably what it should be with COVID when it comes to kids. Now, right now you're seeing all these reports of increased heart inflammation in adolescents. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's quite ironic in the sense that you saw a lot of universities, these big 10 universities were halting fall sports because there were reports of heart inflammation from COVID-19. So they halted them. But those same big 10 universities are now requiring their students to get this vaccine. And we have more reports of heart inflammation following the vaccine than we did with COVID. So, I mean, it's really hard to follow the logic here because there's no logic. There's none. Um, And... The thing is, when they're doing these clinical trials in the adolescents, in the younger kids, they're really only having enough kids in it to make sure that the vaccine produces an immune response and that they have a good dose. Yeah. And so it's not powered enough, meaning not enough people are enrolled, to see some of those more rare side effects. So it's really not surprising when we have about 7 million adolescents now who have gotten the vaccine that we have you know, a good amount, several hundred cases of cardiac inflammation afterwards, symptomatic because they went and saw the doctor. So you're going to start seeing those rare things come out the more you give it to them. And unfortunately, you know, as I have said, I don't think that this virus is an emergency anymore. The viral transmission's down and it's low risk to children. Why are we still doing this under the emergency use authorization? They should be seeking full FDA approval when it comes to children. And my biggest concern regarding the younger kids You know, yes, we've had some children hospitalized and die from COVID-19, but one of our bigger concerns is that multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that occurs in in kids following an infection with SARS-CoV-2. That's like an autoimmune response or a post-viral syndrome that happens about four weeks after their infection, and it can affect their their heart, kidneys, um, eyes, skin, all these other things, and it can be quite debilitating. Um, So... But the problem is 
That happens as a result of the inflammation from the immune response to the virus. Well, the vaccine is supposed to emulate the virus and the immune response. So how do we not how are we confident that the vaccine itself isn't going to cause MISD? You That's know, right. there are some studies that think that show that the immune response from the vaccines even stronger than the natural response. Right. So are we going to see more cases of MISC from the vaccine than the virus? Will it be more severe? And unfortunately, we won't see that if they're only doing a small amount of the kids in the clinical trial and it goes through under the EUA. They have to do the full FDA approval, in my opinion. Right. We need to look at risk benefits. I, I totally agree. And and unfortunately, this information is really not getting to parents. I mean, I'm a fairly um, you know, well-read person on this issue, and I follow sort of vaccine safety issues. And I didn't really have a full picture of this. And I, it worries me that parents are, and, and for parents who have already gotten their ch- children vaccinated, that they have now this, this, this to worry about. Let me ask you about that um, heart inflammation they are seeing, which I know the CDC called, I don't know if it was an emergency meeting, but they de- they definitely met and discussed the issue. Is there any information, more information on that? Are, is the And also, is the inflammation temporary? Or, or is this something that people are worrying about a sustained inflammation or something that the children are, are having sustained problems with, with this? So the good news, so first of all, myocarditis or pericarditis, pericarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle itself or inflammation of the sac that surrounds the heart. Okay. Now you can get that um, any, after any viral infection. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to say common, it's rare, but it happens. But the good news is the far majority of cases is completely self-limited, meaning after a few days, a few weeks, it goes away. Okay. Um, especially with the use of like um, non-steroidals, like a Motrin or something along those lines. But in the rare cases, yes, it can be chronic it can be severe, it can have long-term implications. So we want to, we would like to avoid it if possible. Right. Um, but, but the good news is if a child gets it, uh, you know, statistically speaking, they're likely going to be just fine and have no long-term effects from it. But the same is true with COVID-19. Exactly. So why, why are we taking one low risk with another. And I've heard some people are arguing saying, well, well, you know, we don't know what the long-term effects are of, you know, the of COVID-19. Right. It could cause long-term damage. I'm like, well, last time I checked, we don't have long-term data on the vaccines either, but exactly. Well, and, we're okay with that. Well, and, and also, you know, you're, and, and someone, sometimes people will also say, well, it protects it, you know, by getting your child a vaccine, it, they can't infect anyone else. But we know that children are not passing. They are not good vectors for this disease. They're not passing it on to people. And so it that also needs to be considered uh, in the decision. Well, I, I really don't think my child is a, is a huge risk factor to other people. I might be, I might be, so I will get it. I'm an older person. I will get it. But it's so, you know, I, I, I feel like also parents are um, being a little bit intimidated into getting uh, into making these decisions, perhaps a little too quickly. I'm a I'm very worried. I have one, ch- my middle child is you know, a very good ball player. And, and I, I worry about these being mandated for him to be able to play. It, it's something that I, I think a lot of parents are worried about. And, and, and unfortunately, when they even ask questions, sometimes they're made to feel, you know, like there's some 
anti-vaxxer. And I think that these are healthy questions that people need to ask. And it's unfortunate that in many sectors and many among some people asking questions questions isn't isn't allowed. And this is why your book is so important. I want to repeat the the name of your book because I know people are going to go on Amazon as I'm saying this. It's called Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Truly, truly necessary. And I think it's like I think I think parents especially should should read this this book. I want to pivot a little bit over to it's a little bit away from kids. I thought one of the most fascinating chapters in your book, um, it was the chapter called Fork in the Road, uh, where you took a look, you looked at how Sweden handled the pandemic. Um, and I just want to read a, a little passage from your book. Uh, you write, instead of oppressive closures, like elsewhere in the world, recommendations were made to the public to lessen gatherings, work from home and protect the elderly. While restaurants were not closed, people were dining out less frequently. Schools were kept in session while social gatherings and indoor activities decreased. So, so this is essentially a matter of trust, the government trusting the population to behave with it with some measure of personal responsibility and, uh, and a sense of community responsibility. They also that you also quoted the AP, an AP article in that same, same chapter where you, you, where the AP article describes Sweden's approach as quote, the people trust the experts and scientists to develop reasonable policies and the government trusts the people to follow those guidelines. Sadly, that is not happening here in the United States, Dr. Sapphire. I, I, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder how we fix that. Um, I think that there has been some problematic, <laughs> to use a, a a popular term, problematic behavior on some of the um, some part of the the public health officials and government officials, and and it's made it harder, frankly, for the medical community to treat people to prevent disease. Um, there's a real trust deficit now with public health. How do we fix this? Well, honestly, we, we're like a lose-lose situation. Because if you look at some countries in Asia, they locked down in the sense that they, they were actually were bolting doors closed for people who had a known co- positive case in their house. They were, there was armed guard in a, a, across all the neighborhoods to make sure people weren't actually leaving. And yes, they got their cases down. They had less deaths per population. Um, but that's not really the society we live in. Right. On the flip side of it, though, we still closed businesses, took kids out of school, and we had very high deaths. So we not only, you know, we, we didn't lock everybody in their homes to get those cases down. People were still gathering in, in the comforts of their homes but we shuttered in perpetual a lot of businesses and a lot of children have suffered because of their being out of school. What right. should have happened was they need to make clear, all right, we're either going to trust the country and come up with some true decisions that are going to help us get through this, or we're going to accept some level of um, devastation by maintaining um, certain freedoms. And, you know, right now I've heard Dr. Fauci and some other people say, so, or Dr. Burks for certain said, you know, so the first wave was inevitable. We couldn't have done much about that. But the second wave is because people acted selfishly. It's like, yeah. okay. it's, it's not good wording, yeah. first of all. Um, maybe if we had better collective leadership and we didn't have the Dr. Fauci's and others who continuously right. changed the information that was coming out, maybe people right. would have had more trust. The reason we had such a bad second wave 
is because of how everything went down in the preceding eight months. And there was a lot of lack of trust from the information coming out. And I think that there needed to be more transparency and less less political insertion in the earlier aspects and then maybe maybe the second wave wouldn't have been so hard. But I mean, one of the most blatant examples of what happened was with hydroxychloroquine. It is yeah. you can almost not even talk about that medication anymore because you sound like a charlatan yes. peddling something. But it's like it's it's like it is the most boring old cheap drug that's been used for decades, and it had known antiviral effects, and you had people showing that it worked against the original SARS. And so, yeah, of course, people all across the world are going to start trying it on the new one. We didn't have any treatments. But the fact that President Trump mentioned it, it turned into this massive conspiracy. Yeah. And anyone who even talked about it, it was as though they were pro-Trump and a conspiracy theorist to the point where you had big tech censoring people. You had some of the most world-renowned medical journals having to retract papers because yep. they use faulty data to try and disprove hydroxychloroquine. It was the most disgusting thing and it caused so much discord. And so it's terrifying. Discord. It's it's terrifying yes. that this sort of broken brain never Trumpism caused I mean when you say like medical journals actually having to, you know, offer retractions because they got so you know spun up with this. It is terrifying to think of of that kind of bias affecting science that that is that's just it boggles my mind well and that in my opinion so when I hear people say well if Americans weren't so selfish it wouldn't be so bad like (laughs) nope nope I don't think that's true I think it has to do with the fact that Americans were distrusting of the information that were coming out of our public health professionals because they did a terrible job they missed the boat and we keep seeing over and over again how bad information was given. And the biggest thing they could have done is just say, you know what, we were wrong. We were wrong about face masks in the beginning. We were wrong about the mode of transmission. We were wrong this. We were wrong about that. But they don't say that. And they ne- and there's and there's was- never there's never an apology. There's never an apology. There's never admitting wrongdoing. There's never any sort of walking back what was said. Never. It's always just this sort of smug attitude. And this is what I I think what I mentioned the Sweden thing. What I found so fascinating about you writing about it is that, you know, there. I, look, I'm not I'm not living in Sweden. I'm not Swedish. I don't know everything about what occurred over there, but. It does sound like, you know, and again, and you make this point too, you can't exactly compare Sweden with is their apples and oranges um, with the United States, but you compared it to, I think, which state? Did, did you do South Dakota or? Uh, you, I believe it was Wisconsin, maybe. One of them, but yes, yes. I tried to take. You tried North to North find North a yeah, a state that didn't have as much lockdowns and you compared them. And, and so, but the, the boy, the bottom line is, is that it, 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 the smugness and certainty, the lack of, of contrition after they were, uh, after, you know, the public health community has been proven wrong. It, it's, um, it really does great on people. And so when I talk about this trust deficit, you know, <laughs> public health earned it. They earned that trust. They treat people badly and, they can't, like you said, they can't, they sort of can't ever come back out and say, sorry, we were wrong about this. And people aren't stupid. They remember that kind of stuff. Um, And I think it's really worrisome if this happens again. And I don't think anybody think, you know, I don't think 
anybody denies that this is this is this may happen again. It's very likely. So it worries me for the next time um, about suggest you know recommendations suggestions coming out of the public health community when we've had you know the I mean for goodness sake the face of public health is Fauci who's obviously proven himself not to be trustworthy now. So I do worry about the next round. You you must also worry about that. Is is the medical community, you know, is there is there anything being done to sort of from a PR perspective to sort of tackle this issue? Well, I can tell you it is, um, it's concerning that at this point, I think the latest poll showed over 50% of Americans don't trust information coming out of the CDC. Right. And you know what? They, they really couldn't right now. And I hate, I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying that. Because I've always been someone who, like, blind, not blindly, but really trusted no, yeah. in the CDC, FDA. But I will tell you, so uh, when in the end of March, I'm sure everyone remembers you have. Um, so uh, you had um, CDC Director Walensky. The end of March, um, she went on a Zoom or whatever. Right. She got. She started. She looked at the camera and she's like, she gets choked up. She's like, I am so worried. <laughs> about the impending doom that yes. is going to come. And I'm like, what are what? you talking about? And then two days later in the Wall Street Journal, an, an article I wrote came out that said, Dr. Fauci, tear off these masks. So we were, just, <laughs> we were definitely in different mindsets. Right. But I was like, how can you say this right now? I'm like, there's, it, it, it just, you, you, all you have to do is look at the data. Yes, there was going to be a small bump after spring break. That's what happens. But the fact that we were vaccinating millions of Americans every single day at that point, I'm like, yeah. no way. By Memorial Day weekend, it's, a, it's time for emascipation, yeah. not impending doom. Like, why are you doing this? Yes, and, and it this is. This fear is terrible. And I do think, I mean, I, you know, you got to, you, you, I, I don't want to sound like my own, for, like a conspiracist as well. But, you know, I do think that there was so there was the, it, it really was sort of wrapped up in school openings and the pressure to get schools opened. And, you know, the teachers unions and many other groups are saying, no, keep them closed or keep kids masked or keep it, you know, to hybrid. Or, and I think there has been a real reluctance on in some sectors of the government to open up. And so other sectors of the government are sort of willing to go along like, OK, let's keep up the fear. Let's keep stoking the fear. Let's keep people nervous uh, because then they'll more easily acquiesce to these policies that are really inconvenient or in some cases taking their businesses away or taking their, their, you know, jobs away. Um, I think people are more willing to sort of acquiesce to those policies when they're, they're actually afraid. And so that, to me, that's sort of, and again, I know that might sound a little bit conspiratorial, but I really think that, that there was this thinking on government, on some government officials um, among them to, to, to keep, people nervous and and again they'll they'll behave if you will um i i i know we've gone on a little long and i i don't i i don't want to um I, you know i don't want to keep you too much longer but i do want to just ask you a quick question not we, we don't have enough time to go into this deeply but i'd like to talk about china and 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 i know you're like that's like the most complicated issue that you're starting here at the end but um I, I guess my only question is Biden has now called for an investigation, including into Fauci. Do you think we'll ever know that? I, I just a basic question. Do you think we'll ever really know where this came from? Uh, well, we, it came from China. We start there. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. Yes, I know. Do you? Do you? I just. So, I mean, 
How how timely was it that there's an entire chapter in my book I know. exploring the origins of the yes. virus? I'm like, oh, glad everyone's catching up now. <laughs> so, uh, no, honestly, I think that, uh, you know, I think if if there was evidence that it came from the lab, uh, it's pro- they're probably destroyed at this point. Um, yeah. I think, you know, we know it came from a certain area in China. The fact that the mecca for coronavirus research with the most genetically similar viruses to the circulating SARS-CoV-2 were eight miles away from that wet market. Um, eh, okay, <laughs> there's a lot of coincidences there. Um, but I, I do think that it should be heavily investigated. I think what's happening right now with what... President Biden has instituted is more of um, virtue signaling, signaling. I think what Mike Pompeo and the, um, the Trump administration was doing in their investigation probably would have um, resulted in a little bit more um, accuracy. Um, but I think at this point, much of the evidence is gone. That is, that is unfortunate. I, I don't want to end this on a, on a, um, on a, a totally negative note here, but I do, I do want to reiterate that, that your book is, is a, a, an absolute must read. I think that, that the American public deserves to know the truth. I don't think there are a lot of officials out there um, willing to, to dig into the issues as, as deeply as you did. And I am really grateful to you for doing that. Um, I, I mentioned to you before we went on that I am, I am going to buy this book and several times and send it to people who I think really need, uh, need this information. And I really hope that our listeners will listen to this, um, or will, will get this book, um, as well and, and, and send it off to people that, that, that need it as well. I'm going to say the name again. It's called Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And I know I just said, the ending there, but doctor, if you could just say your Twitter handle and, and where else people can read your writing. Uh, my Twitter handle is NB Sapphire, my name, S-A-P-H-I-E-R-M-D. Um, and I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and I have a website, NicoleSapphireMD.com. You can kind of find most of my stuff there or just Google me. I'm around. And you're also on Fox News Channel quite a bit too. So watch her there as well. Thanks again, doctor. Thank you. We hope you take away something new from today's conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks or like the podcast in general, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure our message reaches as many Americans as possible. Share this episode and let your friends know they can find more She Thinks episodes on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, and their favorite podcast app. This is Julie Gunlock signing off on another special pop-up episode of She Thinks.